0: This edition of the Global Leadership Series held at Customs House in Brisbane, Australia asked the question, what's it all about? Constitution, Treaty, Voice. When the Uluru Statement from the Heart was released in 2017, it called for an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice to be enshrined in the Australian Constitution. It was an important moment in our country's history calling for structural reform to enable Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples to have a greater say in the laws, policies and services that impact them. UQ alumnus Professor Megan Davis, the Belknaves Chair in Constitutional Law at the University of New South Wales, Sydney, reflects on the key concepts of the Uluru Statement from the Heart and important questions facing Australia on the path to a better future.
1: Good evening, everybody. Welcome to UQ Customs House in Brisbane. I am Professor Bronwyn Fredericks and Pro-Vice-Chancellor Indigenous Engagement at the University of Queensland. I begin by acknowledging the traditional owners and custodianship of the lands on which UQ resides, not just here where Customs House is located but on all the uh, lands where the properties of UQ operate and extend to um, and work with students and communities and recognise um, the communities and their ongoing custodianship and also Indigenous peoples' continual custodianship and contributions, not just to Australia, but the global world. I wish to acknowledge Vice-Chancellor, who's here this evening and will be speaking, Professor Megan Davis, who will be speaking tonight, colleagues, UQ community, which includes the donors, which includes alumni, which includes some students here, and just interested people that came along tonight from the UQ community, along with distinguished guests. I welcome you all this evening. Um, We're in for a great night, um, an interesting presentation and talk by Megan Davis um, around the Uluru Statement, Treaty, Truth and Voice. I'd now like to introduce the Vice-Chancellor and President, Professor Debbie Terry.
0: Thank you very much Bronwyn and can I begin also by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands on which we are meeting here tonight. We honour their elders and their continuing cultural and spiritual connection to this land as we walk together on the path to reconciliation. I'd also like to join Bronwyn in welcoming everyone here tonight. It's great to see uh, this full room. Uh, Welcome, obviously, colleagues from across the university, but most importantly, so many members of our UQ community who have taken the time to join us for this very important lecture here tonight. Now, I understand, and in fact, I know this, that this is the first in-person event that we've been able to stage in the Global Leadership Series since the start of the pandemic. And isn't it great to be back in a room all together, surrounded by colleagues, surrounded by uh, people that we I'm sure will enjoy conversation with uh, after the lecture, and it sure beats being in front of a Zoom camera, I have to say. So in the tradition of the Global Leadership Series, this evening's lecture is on a really important and consequential issue for our nation our guest lecturer tonight is Professor Megan Davis. She's a woman who wears many hats, but she is perhaps best known currently as Pro Vice-Chancellor Indigenous and the Balnaves Chair for Constitutional Law at the University of New South Wales. Professor Davis is a cobble-cobble Aboriginal woman from South West Queensland, and she has a long association with the University of Queensland. A former resident of Duchesne College and an alumna of this university, Megan gained her Bachelor of Arts from UQ in 1997, before going on to complete a Bachelor of Laws in 1999. And the university recognised Megan's very significant contributions to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in 2014, when we awarded her the Indigenous Community Impact Award as part of our annual UQ Alumni Awards. Now this evening, Professor Davis will share with us her immense knowledge of constitutional law and her vast experiences of engaging with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities right across Australia. As the lead constitutional lawyer appointed to the Referendum Council, she played an instrumental role in the community consultation that led to the development of the Uluru Statement from the heart. Indeed, Professor Davis was such a pivotal person in that process that she was given the honour of being the first person to publicly read aloud the Uluru Statement. At the conclusion of the First Nations Constitutional Convention held at Uluru, in May 2017. And ever since then, Megan has continued to be a key leader in the work of the Uluru Dialogues and the movement seeking a constitutionally enshrined Indigenous voice to Parliament. To my mind, she personifies the power and the impact of speaking with one voice for the goals of voice, treaty and truth that are so eloquently articulated in the Uluru Statement from the Heart. And it is this vision of a future Australia where Indigenous children, and I quote, will walk in two worlds and their culture will be a gift to their country that resonates with such impact. Megan's many talents, interests and areas of expertise are so wide and deep that it's impossible to capture them all in a short three minute introduction. But I will point out that she's had a lengthy diplomatic career in the United Nations. She's also an acting commissioner of the New South Wales Land and Environment Court and a commissioner of the Australian Rugby League. Indeed, she is the ultimate Australian renaissance woman. It is my great pleasure to welcome Professor Davis back to UQ this evening. We're honoured to have you with us, Megan. It's an absolute privilege. We're very proud of everything that you've achieved. And uh, I introduce her topic, which is titled, What's It All About? Constitution, Treaty, Voice. Please join me in making her feel very welcome.
2: Thank you for that very generous um, introduction. Um, and also to Bron. Um, I echo both of your acknowledgements of country. Um, I am a Cobble Cobble Aboriginal woman from Southwest Queensland and grew up down in Eagleby, Beenleigh Way on Yugambeh country. Um, thank you all of you for taking the time to come um, together here. I, I grew up, as, as I just said, in down the Beenleigh train line at, at Eagleby um, and used to uh, well, I lived on Duchesne, at Duchesne College for three years, and then for the rest of the time used to commute on the Beanley train up and back um, to St. Lucia. And my brothers, Will, John and Alfie and Lucy, we have all um, we all have undergraduate degrees from the University of Queensland. I stayed at Duchesne and my brothers stayed at St. Leo's. So the University of Queensland is very close to my heart. I'm very proud of my association with it. When I did my first sabbatical as a junior lawyer, I did it at UQ Law School. And one of my number one collaborators, a young um, lawyer who I've worked with now for 15 years on constitutional recognition, Dr. Uh, Dylan Lino is now at um, UQ Law School. And I should say my mum studied there and so did my auntie and uncle. So, you know, it really is, I think, at UQ where um, my... Desire to be an, acad- an academic was really um, planted, I think. Um, my most influential experiences were um, Cliffy Idy Wadigo, who taught me Aboriginal literature and English literature um, um, and Australian literature in the UQ English department. And of course, Arnie Jackie Huggins, um, a great scholar, historian and academic who was always so welcoming of me at the unit where the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander unit where I spent a lot of my time at UQ. And also at law school, Margaret Stevenson and Anthony Casimatis are two people who come to mind as two people who were really so incredibly encouraging of me. And I always, you know, reconnected with them as I continued to work with the United Nations over 20 years, um, particularly Anthony, who taught me public international law at UQ. As the title of the speech suggests, as a UQ community, we come together to answer a very important question tonight, and one that speaks to the heart of Australia and the possibilities for its future. A critical question, not just for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but the whole nation. What is it all about? Constitution, treaty, and voice. This Wednesday marks the fourth anniversary of the Uluru Statement from the Heart. And it is that moment, four years ago at Uluru, uh, on the land of the Ununu, that the answer to the, to the question that the lecture asks is found. And on the 26th of May, 2017, 250 First Nations delegates came together, the culmination of 13 regional dialogues with over 1,200 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across the country, and endorsed what we called a historic roadmap to peace, voice, treaty, truth, An invitation, literally an invitation to all Australians to walk with us as First Nations people to a better future. The Uluru Statement calls for a voice to Parliament enshrined in the Constitution and for a pathway to agreement-making or or treaty and ongoing truth-telling. Yet this important moment comes with a very long history. Australia has grappled with the question of what recognition means concerning First Nations peoples uh, for, for many years, and tonight I want to talk about that in order to the answer the question, what is it all about? So tonight I want to do a number of things. I want to give you a bit of background on the Uluru Statement from the Heart's History, um, and in particular this project or enterprise that is known as constitutional recognition of Indigenous peoples. I wanna talk to what recognition means, why constitutional dialogues needed to be held. Um, And then I wanna kind of wrap it up by talking about where we are now, how the Uluru Statement is um, consistent with Australia's legal and political system. And then hopefully, if I have some time, conclude by reading the Uluru Statement from the heart. Some say the recognition project began with John Howard and the Republic referendum. In that referendum, uh, the nation sought to recognise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander polities in a new preamble to the Australian constitution. Of course, it famously was rejected by a majority of Australians, both both the Republic question and the preamble. Since that time, we had then a commitment by John Howard about four days out of a federal election in 2007. Um, And in that commitment, he said that he would run a referendum in his first 100 days to recognise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in a new preamble to the Australian constitution. He did not win that election. Uh, Kevin Rudd won that election. And he too committed to constitutional recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples after meeting with the Yolngu mob in Yirrkala for one of their national uh, cabinets. And it wasn't till Julia Gillard uh, and the hung parliament where we saw a prime minister commit to an actual mechanism um, that would address this question of constitutional recognition. Gillard was asked to set up that mechanism as a part of her taking power in the lower house uh, in an agreement between the Greens and Tony Windsor and Rob Oakeshott. Their argument was that there'd been multi party support for constitutional recognition for well over a decade and it needed to come to fruition. Julia Gillard set up the Prime Minister's expert panel on the recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in the constitution in 2011. That's important to note because we are now in, I think um, the, she she actually appointed us in 2010 and I was a member of that panel, but we're now entering our second decade of constitutional recognition. um, And we're looking at after 10 years, seven processes and nine reports it's, it's a lot of processes and it's a lot of reports. There's been a lot of discussion about what constitutional recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people should look like. So those mechanisms include the expert panel, as I referred to, which handed down its final report in 2012. Then we saw the outgoing Labor government, who were acutely aware that they were outgoing, pass a, an act called an Act of Recognition, um, and the idea behind the Act was that they were concerned that Abbott would kick the can down the road on constitutional recognition. So the Act set up a number of things that meant that Abbott and the new government would have to grapple with constitutional recognition. Then a Joint Select Committee on Constitutional Recognition was set up. Um, that was chaired by Ken Wyatt and Nova Paris, and it produced three reports, an interim report, a progress report, and a final report. Following the Joint Select Committee uh, in 2015, Malcolm Turnbull set up a referendum council, which I was a member of and which culminated in the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Then in 2018, they set up another Joint Select Parliamentary Committee relating to constitutional recognition. It handed down an interim report and a final report in 2018. Then we had a federal election um, and we now have what's known as the uh, Ken Wyatt's uh, Voice Committee and they've handed down an interim voice report in January of this year. So there's been a lot of activity um, at a Commonwealth level on constitutional recognition I wanted to turn quickly to the question of what is recognition uh, insofar as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Recognition is a complex legal and political concept. Um, It can mean many things. It can mean symbolic acknowledgement, uh, but it can also mean substantive reform to power relations. In some ways, recognition sits on a spectrum. At one end, you might have something like the preamble uh, proposed by John Howard. I was gonna say and Les Murray, but Les Les signed off and I think Aidan Ridgway took that one up, but the point being there's a spectrum of recognition and at one end is a weak form of recognition, which is something like a statement of recognition or a preamble, and at the other end is substantive recognition. So something, as I said, um, that uh, redistributes power, or talks to power relations. And this is where we had a problem with the recognition process early on in the first recognition decade. And that was that the public discussion in Australia rarely rose above the dictionary meaning of of recognition, which is acknowledgement. So it means a more symbolic form of recognition, which is utterly at odds with what First Nations people seek in terms of constitutional recognition. And in a recognition exercise, it's very difficult to go to a referendum if one side of the recognition equation, the to be recognised, doesn't agree with that form of recognition. So what we saw post the expert panel with Julia Gillard was a rejection by both parties of a racial non-discrimination clause in the Australian constitution. That was the primary reform put up by the expert panel. And that reform, which is called section 116A, a non-discrimination clause, was intended to bind the federal parliament so that the parliament could not pass discriminatory, racially discriminatory laws. So section 116A, it really spoke to um, a number of uh, developments in the 90s and 2000s, where the Commonwealth passed legislation that was racially discriminatory, such as the Native Title Act. So it singled out Aboriginal property rights for adverse treatment. And again, with the Hindmarsh Island case, there you had the exclusion of Hindmarsh Island from the Aboriginal Heritage Protection Act um, so, that that, so that they could discriminate against Um, Aboriginal women's uh, cultural rights, insofar as Hindmarsh Island, and passed racially discriminatory laws. Similarly, there's an argument that the Northern Territory intervention was racially discriminatory um, legislation, um, although that's still um, debated. The point being that the primary reform on the table in early uh, 2011 and 12 was a non-discrimination clause but both sides of politics rejected it and they decided between themselves that they would pursue a more symbolic form of recognition so something that had a statement in the constitution that reflected you know the fact of history aboriginal people were here aboriginal people are still here so a statement of recognition but this is not what the community wanted. And it was very unsettling for many in the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community, um, the debate uh, for recognition as symbolic recognition. And so in the absence of a very clear and substantive model or proposal for recognition, this advocacy for recognition was conflated with the most minimal symbolic form of recognition. So we spoke, and when I say we, Patrick Dodson and Noel Pearson uh, and myself and Kirsty Parker, who was the chair of the National Congress of Australia's First Peoples, we met with Tony Abbott to say, you cannot pursue a referendum that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people don't agree to, meaning a question that we're not going to support. And although some politicians suggested to us that they didn't need the Aboriginal vote to get the referendum across the line, we impressed upon them that it was repugnant to have a referendum on a model that people did not seek. So Tony Abbott committed to another process. So by this time in 2015, no one had actually gone out to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities properly and ask them what form of recognition that they sought. Me me and my colleagues on the expert panel, we didn't consult with communities, we were an expert panel. There was 24 of us, it included a large number of politicians, and we decided what the reforms were and what people would respond to in a public submissions process. So Abbott um, lost office. Obviously, it was that period of revolving Door, um, the revolving door of Prime Ministers, and Malcolm Turnbull became the Prime Minister. And he very quickly announced a Referendum Council. And this Referendum Council's job was to go out and consult with communities about what form of recognition they would prioritise in their regions. It was a difficult time to lead the Referendum Council's deliberative dialogues because consultation had become um, a dirty word in Aboriginal communities. Communities were used to local government, state government, federal government, flying in, flying out, coming in and doing ticker box consultations with communities about multiple policies and laws. So we didn't want to do a ticker box consultation. We decided we would do a proper structured deliberative dialogue process where we would run a sample of First Nations representatives, through what we called a dialogue, and those people who participated in the dialogue um, would have to be chosen by local Indigenous community organisations, and then they would participate in a three-day process of tightly structured intensive civics education, legal education. Um, and then a number of days where legal options were discussed in terms of assessment of the reform proposals that Bill Shorten and Malcolm Turnbull had agreed for us to take out to the community. We spent a year preparing for the dialogues. The dialogues ran for six months, but we spent one year going out across the country consulting with three particular groups, traditional owners... Um, our national peaks and Aboriginal organisations, and key national leaders and figures in the Aboriginal struggle. We held three major meetings in Broome, Thursday Island, and in Melbourne, where we ran the proposed dialogue process by a large number of leaders, and got their feedback, criticism, input, and then got their sign-off. We then ran a trial dialogue at Melbourne Law School, where we brought in all of the community leaders who would lead the dialogue in their region. And um, it was there that we finessed and refined the dialogue process, but each leader could see how the, the dialogue would run in their community. It was really important that we capped the numbers at 100, roughly 100 to 120. We weren't given a very large budget at all by the, by the Commonwealth but also we wanted the outcome to be robust. It needed to be a really robust um, process in which every dialogue were given exactly the same information um, and every working group ran exactly the same way. We privileged the participation of traditional owners. So most of the dialogues were run by um, land councils. And they worked on the invitation lists with their local organisations. 60% of the invitees had to be traditional owners. And then 20% had to be local Aboriginal organisations. And then the last 20% was held for, you know, mob in the community who were interested. Some some regions ran competitions, some regions, you know, you, you could nominate and so you had a variety of people turn up from um, grannies, grandmothers, um, you know, little kids, um, people that are just generally interested in, in these kinds of um, processes, I think. So that was the kind of structure of the dialogues. We wanted to ensure that when the result came out, that it was not disregarded, but under, underpinned by our cultural authority and that's why the participation of traditional owners was so so important. Um, After the regional dialogues were run, the national meeting that people talk about at Uluru was an endorsement meeting. So you couldn't go to Uluru and undo what all the mob had done in the regions. Uluru involved each dialogue reading out their record of meeting. So every single dialogue, we spent a day agreeing on a text, what was discussed in the dialogue. Is this accurate? Are the quotes accurate? And everybody had to sign off on it, so we had an accurate record of meeting. And that was important because the dialogue is designed to capture tension and disagreement. The entire dialogue it operates on the basis of tension. That is to say, we are, not like, we are like any other community in Australia. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples don't all agree on the same thing. And so it was really important in that record of meeting to reflect all of the criticism, concerns, um, the contest of ideas, and then people would sign off on that ROM, and that was read out at Uluru, and that was the work of Uluru. So the regional dialogues were convened in Hobart uh, by the Tasmanian Aboriginal Corporation, Broome by the Kimberley Land Council, Dubbo by the New South Wales Aboriginal Land Council, Darwin by the Northern Land Council. Perth by the Southwest Aboriginal Land and Sea Council. Sydney by Newswalk again, the New South Wales Aboriginal Land Council. Melbourne by the Federation of Victorian Traditional Owners Corporation. Cairns was North Queensland Land Council. Um, Ross River um, was hosted by the Central Land Council. Adelaide was hosted by the Aboriginal Legal Rights Movement. Brisbane was hosted by a a number of organisations, and Thursday Island was hosted by the Torres Strait uh, Strait Regional Authority um, and the Torres Shire Council. We also held a truncated dialogue in Canberra with the United Ngunnawal Elders Council. So the consensus at Uluru, we say, is evidenced by the integrity of the process, the exhaustive deliberations that occurred, um, the informed participation of the participants, and we took very seriously the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and the notion of free, prior and informed consent. So we believe that the outcome captured in Uluru was a testament to the efficacy of that structured process. It is a process that is unprecedented in our nation's history. It's the first time a constitutional convention has been convened are uh, with and for First Nations? And it's the most proportionately significant consultation process that's ever been undertaken with First Peoples. Keep in mind, it wasn't a consultation process, so we weren't there. We weren't there t- doing the ticker-box thing. It was a deliberative dialogue model. And we say it engaged a greater proportion of the relevant population than the constitutional convention debates of the 1800s from which First Nations peoples were excluded. We modelled a lot of the process on the Constitutional Centenary Foundation's framework, um, and they did their work through the 1990s to encourage debate on constitutional issues um, in local communities and schools. And we adapted it to the needs of our dialogues, but it had the same principles, right? Impartiality, accessibility of relevant information, open and constructive dialogue, and mutually agreed and owned outcomes. We really wanted to avoid groupthink, where you have an open process at town hall and people are not able to say what they think um, or are corralled into a particular position and don't feel safe to say what their view is. So um, mitigating groupthink was really critical. So that, that's the Uluru Dialogues. Um, we translated all the material into as many languages as we had to, The Ross River um, Central Land Council dialogue had five different interpreters there. There were so many languages. And um, my legal lecture that normally takes one hour took five hours. We flew in early to work with interpreters to make sure that we ran the whole process by them and they were able to translate it into Aboriginal languages. So we did a lot of work early on before we went in to make sure that the legal concepts were presented to people in a way that they would understand. So the the, the proposal is voice, treaty, truth. The primary reform, though, on the agenda is an enshrined voice, because that's what we were asked to do. We were asked what form of constitutional recognition is meaningful to you. And you will note that once we went through a deliberative process where people could exercise their own opinions and thoughts that a constitutional, this notion of a constitutional voice became more prominent than a treaty and became more prominent than a non-discrimination clause. And there's a number of reasons for that. What we heard in communities and in dialogues was that people thought the voice could operate as a front-end political limit on the parliament's power to pass laws that affect Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, um, particularly under Section 5126, the race power, and Section 122, the plenary power um, of territories. And it was an interesting decision-making, actually. People were surprised that treaty didn't come first, but what you heard around the communities, keeping in mind these are mostly traditional owners, was that native title has been really destructive in communities. People and families and clans aren't talking to each other. Um, it's taken a lot of time, a lot of money, and there's a lot of anger about the native title process. Having said that, there are some areas that have got very strong native title. So when you went to Broome, you saw a, a lethargy with agreement making and, and treaty came almost, it came dead last. Yeah, because that is what treaty is, it's agreement making. But in those areas where there was very serious dispossession, acute dispossession of our people from their lands, and those areas where our people say genocide occurred, then treaty was really, really the primary reform. So it depended on where you were in the country as to the responses to the reforms. And really, you you have to follow the historical um, patterns, the dispossession patterns, and and the killing times too, the frontier wars. You've got to follow the historical map of Australia's beginning to understand who wanted what and where. What we can say, though, is that people felt that an enshrined voice was the number one priority in their region. And this enshrined voice, although people accepted that, um, it would not guarantee that the federal parliament couldn't pass their laws, right, because it was a proper deliberative process. Our mob talked about parliamentary sovereignty and the sovereignty of parliament. They still felt it would be... um, ..it would create a limit through political empowerment which would hopefully garner better quality design policies and laws in the future. And what First Nations People were saying was... We want to use your law to compel you to have us at the table when laws and policies are made about our lives. One of the big turns to the voice, I think, in the dialogues, which surprised many, was the Indigenous Advancement Strategy, a policy that was introduced in 2014, 2015, by um, Abbott and Ken White. And what it did was it took all of the funding for Aboriginal affairs across the Commonwealth and across the Federation, and it collapsed it all into one bucket. And so literally overnight, programs, policies, employment, you know, programs that had been around since, you know, Whitlam's self-determination era, they all fell over. And so MOB had to then reapply for that money. And what we saw from three or four successive Australian National Audit Office reports is that the first round of money, 70 to 80% went to non-Indigenous people so about twenty or thirty percent went to Aboriginal communities. And the bulk of the money that went to non-Indigenous people went to corporations who had reconciliation action plans. Yeah, so it funded their RAPs, but funded, you know, they, they defunded our communities and it funded our unemployment in our communities. So there was a very strong view um, about the desire to have us at the table when laws and policies are made about us. So it's it's a law to compel us to be there. So climate change, bushfire, COVID, those kinds of laws. Um, But it doesn't bind the Commonwealth. Yeah, meaning we, we haven't yet worked out the details, but they could issue a statement of incompatibility, for example, we don't know what that looks like, that's the process going on at the moment. But it is to compel the state to have us at the table. Because if, if they're not compelled, they don't have us at the table. And what, what do we have? We have 10 to 12 years of closing the gap going backwards and disadvantage being entrenched. So that's what the dialogues came up with. Something that a lot of the old people in the dialogues who are just incredible, actually, just super generous about history and what has happened to them and their generosity about taking this opportunity of constitutional reform and offering it as a, as a olive branch, as a sign of peace to the Australian people. And so, although we had thought we would put whatever came out of the dialogues, we, we didn't know what was gonna happen, on a bark petition or a painting and hand it to Turnbull and Shorten at the Rock, it was decided at the Rock to uninvite them and instead we would invite the Australian people to accept it, like they did in 1967. And that is what the Uluru Statement from the Heart, it is an invitation to the Australian people to, to walk with us in this journey. Because currently our liberal democracy is suffering, some would call it inertia, when it comes to really serious issues um, facing the nation. And this is one, and this is one that's always kicked down the road for political expediency. So constitutional voice, Makarrata commission, and um, truth-telling. So truth was the one thing that, you know, Turnbull was correct. We didn't get permission to take that out. But we weren't suggesting a truth commission at all. What we found was that we could not start the dialogues until people talked about truth, um, the true history of Australia and and the role of truth-telling. So there was a lot of resentment in dialogues that we do a lot of truth-telling to the nation. Um, and there's not much in return. So we talked about the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths and Custody, the Bringing Them Home report. We talked about the reconcil- statutory reconciliation process that was kicked off in 1991. The, the Cabinet papers tell us from that time when Hawke couldn't deliver on a treaty, which he promised, and Hawke couldn't deliver on national land rights, that his Cabinet said, well oh, we know, Australia has to get to know blackfellas first, so we're going to have a truth-telling process. And they, and they kicked us down the road for a whole decade into a reconciliation process that, at the end of it, the Prime Minister rejected entirely. So what we heard in the dialogues was really interesting. We heard that people don't want to... I know a lot of people came out and said, South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission, that is not at all what people wanted. It was much more sophisticated than that. People say that they already um, do truth-telling in their communities now via native title. A lot of work is done at a grassroots level between local governments, local historical societies and Aboriginal communities. So they wanted truth-telling to happen, but at their own pace, as they decide. You know, there was criticisms of the frontier map, um, with the frontier massacres on, on the map where people were like, we weren't asked. You know, we're not, we don't want to show where that is and we're not ready to talk about that. And so there was a lot of, I think, really incredible um, input, particularly from our elders in, in these dialogues about truth and truth-telling. And that's why, as Bron said in her introduction, it's a sequence of reforms. It, constitutional recognition is first. And from that, we unlock the Baccarata Commission, in which mobs can do agreement-making if they say choose. So not all people in communities in the dialogues wanted treaty or agreements. Um, and a lot said that they're not talking, like communities aren't talking to each other, so they need, they need help, they need money to negotiate treaties, they need, you know, they need help to talk to each other again. If anything, people ask for um, dispute resolution services more than they did um, anything else. And truth-telling isn't really... It wasn't a mechanism or a commission. It was just something that you unlock as a consequence of this Uluru sequence, which is a constitutionally enshrined voice to Parliament. And the most powerful thing, I think, is that our people said reconciliation is the wrong word. It's the wrong word to use. That reconciliation means you're, you're, you're becoming friends again after you've had a dispute. Um, but that's not, that's not where we are. So the elders, when we were at the National Convention, um, and the TOs, they said, we haven't met yet. Yeah, we haven't met yet. It's not reconciliation, we haven't met. And that is what the Uluru Statement from the Heart is. It is an invitation for the Australian people to come and meet us at The Rock and, and walk together on this structured journey um, because if we don't do it, um, we don't think our elected representatives are going to do it. And, and our pe- old people are dying, and there's a lot of languages dying with them, and, and this is, this is, it is time to do this now. I just wanted to say a little bit about, um, and I'm, this is my conclusion, about why Uluru is so utterly consistent with Australia's legal and political system. You know, one of the first things, and and some of this part, Bronwyn, it comes from some of the questions that I got that I thought I should address, because some of them are very important questions. But one of the first things I have to say is that minority rights, a minority rights framework, is an inappropriate lens to understand Indigenous claims. It's important to make that point because that's what we've been squeezed into. But it mischaracterises Indigenous claims as something other than what they are. They are constitutional claims on the state, political and cultural claims, not just about resources and socioeconomic disadvantage or recognition, although that is key um, because of the history and the impact of racism and dispossession. The identity politics critique is also incorrect and inappropriate. Identity politics is more of a dog whistle when have states not been about identity politics? Aside from the fact that our claims and our rights have existed long before that concept, that university-created concept of identity politics, our claims and rights otherwise are not simply tribal or identity issues. To characterise them as such is to fail to understand not only the claims but what it is to live in a community with others. We are not abstract individual beings devoid of culture and tradition and history. That is not what makes the liberal social fabric. And it is that pretense that we are equal despite so much disparity and injustice that causes harm to the social fabric, not the claims themselves. The liberal social fabric is supposed to be about rights, protection and tolerance, a social contract that enables different peoples to live together in community and doing justice to each other's claims. This has not been realised ever because so many have been excluded to make it a reality, which has been the history of our people in this country, or the price demanded from so many is not to exist at all. Liberal constitutionalism doesn't doesn't have to be like this. It has the potential to be otherwise, which has been the history of our people in this country or the price demanded from so many. Um, Sorry, I've just skipped a... Liberal constitutionalism doesn't have to be like this. It has the potential to be otherwise to provide the institutional mechanisms to treat people equally without erasing them or demanding homogenous sameness. This then leads into another argument, the baseline of Locke's principles underpinning constitutionalism and the potential for this to breach them, equality before the law, one vote, one value. But it's all a myth, even pegging it to Locke is a myth. Locke's fundamental principles of constitutionalism were about enabling individuals to live together in community, about institutional mechanisms while limited to regulate and support that. While we now accept that the figure of the individual has needed updating from its sexist and racial exclusions, the principles by which these various actors or different actors can exist together in political society remain similar and more important than ever. And as a side note, while Locke's views were representative of the time, even he accepted Indigenous claims as political entities. And as Justice Edelman recently outlined elegantly in Love and Commonwealth, the equality issue here is that by not engaging, recognising and implementing First Nations rights, we fail the ideal of liberal society. To dismiss this reform outright because of a supposed fealty to abstract and ideal notions of equality that would and do actually deny justice is the injustice and it is the step that would and does deny the potential for these Lockean principles that underpin constitutionalism to be put into practice and work. No one is asking the law or justice not to be blind. We are asking it for, for it to be applied fairly and equally. We are asking for our legitimate rights to be recognised and enforced and to be part of the community, just as they are elsewhere and have always been here. We are not asking for an extra vote, and it doesn't have that effect. It's simply another institutional mechanism that enables this nation to address its most fundamental and foundational issue through the institutional mechanisms of liberal constitutionalism. It enables us, finally, to have a foundation for a meaningful relationship and to actually put uh, liberal constitutionalism into practice rather than continually speak of it as abstractly and ideally while we deny so many. The Uluru Statement from the Heart is a reform process for an enhanced participation in Australia's democracy. The hope of Uluru is this, the law can oppress, yes, but the law can also redeem. The Uluru Convention saw the delegates adopt a consensus position on constitutional recognition and then issue the Uluru Statement from the Heart. We we issued it to you, the Australian people, and not to the politicians. It's an offer to the Australian people, and the consideration, a voice to Parliament enshrined in the Constitution, is a small price for the benefit that it will unlock for all Australians. And I'll just quickly, it's one minute Bron, read the Uluru Statement from the Heart. We gathered here at the 2017 National Constitutional Convention coming from all points of the southern sky, make this statement from the heart. Our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes were the first sovereign nations of the Australian continent and its adjacent islands, and possessed it under our own laws and customs. This our ancestors did, according to the reckoning of our culture from the creation, according to the common law from time immemorial, and according to science, more than 60,000 years ago. This sovereignty is a spiritual notion, the ancestral tie between the land or Mother Nature and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who were born therefrom, remain attached thereto, and must one day return thither to be united with our ancestors. This link is the basis of the ownership of the soil, or better, of sovereignty. It has never been ceded or extinguished, and it coexists with the sovereignty of the Crown. How could it be otherwise? That peoples possessed a land for 60 millennia, and this sacred link disappears from world history in merely the last 200 years? With substantive constitutional change and structural reform, We believe this ancient sovereignty can shine through as a fuller expression of Australia's nationhood. Proportionally, we are the most incarcerated people on the planet. We are not innately criminal people. Our children are alien from their families at unprecedented rates. This cannot be because we have no love for them. And our youth languish in detention, in obscene numbers. They should be our hope for the future. These dimensions of our crisis tell plainly the structural nature of our problem. This is the torment of our powerlessness. We seek constitutional reforms to empower our people and take a rightful place in our own country. When we have power over our destiny, Our children will flourish. They will walk in two worlds and their culture will be a gift to their country. We call for the establishment of a First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution. Makarata, it is the culmination of our agenda, the coming together after a struggle. It captures our aspirations for a fair and truthful relationship with the people of Australia and a better future for our children based on justice and self-determination. We seek a Makarata Commission to supervise a process of agreement-making between governments and First Nations and truth-telling about our history. In 1967, we were counted. In 2017, we seek to be heard. We leave base camp and start our trek across this vast country. And we invite you to walk with us in a movement of the Australian people for a better future. Thank you.
1: I'm feeling really uplifted um, from Megan's words, and I hope you are too, Um, and you're inspired. And um, a couple of us had a bit of a tit-for-tat on Twitter today, and someone said we'll be on fire, and certainly I hope that um, Megan's words have stirred your fire within you um, to to do something and to join in the movement. We're going to have some questions now, Megan, and they're three from the list of questions we got, and and maybe one mightn't be necessary because you might have covered, I think you've covered that. The first one, it does speak to a number of issues that are raised with me in my role, but I'll read it out. Since moving to Australia from North America a decade ago, I have been impressed with the amount of verbal recognition given to Indigenous matters. For instance, the customary recognition of the country is read out at the beginning of major functions, as we did this evening. However, a deeper examination reveals that in terms of actions affecting Indigenous peoples, much remains to be desired. Do you think the overt and continuous emphasis on verbal recognition might be distracting from the struggle for actual recognition and this person says their impression is that people think their duties are fulfilled once they have said those sort of mandatory lines.
2: It's a very good question. I, look like, I mean, I can't talk for every Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person in the room, but I know I get frustrated now with, especially in COVID, the, the endless Zoom and Teams acknowledgements. Um, it drives me up the wall, but that's just me. Um, so we don't mandate it at our university because we've kind of crossed that line into this is turning into some bizarre mass tokenism. It's nice, um, but we still don't have any substantive rights. And we still have so many problems. And every time we come at the nation on something that might be concrete and empower our people, the, the answer is, you know, like Turnbull, like flat out, no, even though we're still here four years later, that's an ob- observation from someone who's come to Australia, and um, a lot of people do make that observation. Now, some, some mob obviously really love it, and it is important. It is, welcomes are important. But I do think it's really overdone. For example, so many of my elders, and the same down in Sydney, say, you know, once it's done, it's done. The first person does the welcome, and then that's enough. But, but instead, you get everybody getting up and doing an acknowledgement, and it's... Um, I don't know what Australians are doing, but it's, it's definitely increasing in volume. Um, and I know it might just be that people want to do something, but we just... Gesture politics are great. You know, it's not resulting in any substantive change uh, for our people. The gap's not closing. We still have no substantive constitutional reform. It's, um, it can look to outsiders like a little bit tokenistic, yeah.
1: I think the same happens when people say, can I have one? They want acknowledgement or they want to welcome um, non-Indigenous people I'm talking about. So it's become that sense of people just expect it without actually thinking what it actually even implies. And in that way, it's quite tokenistic to- Yes, I did, sorry.
2: Yeah. (laughs) I'm just gonna keep talking. I did an essay in the monthly in response to this thing that's being snuck into all the welcomes, which is, sorry, acknowledgements, which is emerging leaders. And so we did a lot of research to track back when welcomes started, why they started. And, yeah, emerging leaders weren't there then. And then we traced emerging leaders back to Queensland, a Queensland bureaucrat. Um, anyway, the point being, you know, it is, it is our elders that choose who our, lead, our, young, who our leaders are. Um, it's our communities that choose who those leaders are. And um, it just... That's caused a lot of community friction too, you know, the notion of non-Indigenous people endowing this leadership kind of role upon our our young people. You know, many find that problematic as well.
1: This next question, I think you've answered in part, um, Megan, which is, I have a commitment to an authentic and productive truth-telling process as part of the entire cause. How do you relate that to constitution, treaty, and voice? And are you encouraged by the current attempts at truth-telling?
2: Truth-telling is really important. I think... I'm running this textbook, don't ask. Um, It's, like, ten years out of date. Um, (laughs) I've taken that long to... Anyway, it's not funny. Um, And it's stuck in the history walls, period, and I was just reading it all going, it's a little bit different now. There's been, like, a proliferation of young... Historians writing on Aboriginal history—well, um, not young historians—but there, there, there are like I'm not disavowing the Bruce Pascoe stuff that goes on, but there's a lot more non-Indigenous historians writing on um, Aboriginal history as well as our own people. I mean, I was—I grew up during the history war period, um, and now when I see some of the incredible work that's coming out, um, you know, like Stephen Gapp's Sydney Wars and. There's so... Grace Carskin's work, I I don't think there is... I don't know whether you'd agree, but as heated as it was during that Howard period. um, You kind of have politicians oscillating between, you know, saying quite ridiculous things about Australian history in terms of it being wedded to, you know, pretty much Anzac Day as the only thing that's ever happened, and then, you know, then swinging back to kind of statements about... Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander history. But look, when it comes to truth-telling, I suppose the sequencing part of Uluru was really important because there was a lot of strategic thinking around that. And that is to say, you know, you see the treaty process in Victoria, for example, that treaty is not going anywhere until that truth-telling is done and that can take 10 to 20 years. Mick Dodson says in the Northern Territory it's going to take 20 years to to get to a treaty. Truth-telling, I think, one of our concerns is people immediately think of some of the examples overseas, transitional justice examples, and That's in particular right. South Africa, and anybody who knows anybody from South Africa or can read knows that the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission isn't something that you would want to model your truth-telling on. What I... I mean, I'm not an expert in this field. All I say is I, I heard what I heard in the dialogues, and I think mobs should be in control of what that looks like in their regions, and First Nations people want to control the truth-telling of their nation, And that they should be um, uh, resourced to be able to do that. But I don't think that we need to wait for some national Truth and Reconciliation Commission to move on some of these really important structural reforms that have to happen.
1: Yeah, that's right. And and some of the people in this room may have been to things like at local libraries or community centres or at schools. They're all participating already in some of that truth-telling at very, very local levels, certainly in rural um, and regional areas. They're doing that too outside of the city, city, big metropolitan cities as well.
2: Yeah, especially local government, they're really the heavy hitters of, if I can use the word reconciliation, it's not, you know, we obviously say the word is wrong, but they are some of the heavy lifters, sorry, of truth-telling. And there's some really moving things that have been done right across the Federation when it comes to recognition of massacre sites and frontier killings and frontier wars and, and other things and, and that's, that needs to be tracked at that local level to really understand the nuances of what goes on in a particular region.
1: And the third question, Megan, is, um, and it's quite a longer one, and it, it's around, um, when we look at the concept of an Aboriginal, Torres on a voice to Parliament, could you give it a hypothetical example of how this... Ref- you know, relates or that would relate to constitution, how it would be operationalised?
2: Well, there's lots of examples. I mean, I think uh, you can gorge is one that people use a lot um, around the what we hope will be amendments to the cultural heritage legislation. Now, that is super, super slow, a lot of dragging of feet there. But we we think that the voice would be um, activated on something like that, that kind of Commonwealth legislation at a Commonwealth level, the the kind of voice model that they're contemplating also brings in the territories and the states. So you would be hopefully seeing, and particularly if it's traditional owner-based, really enhanced kind of input from people on the ground about what's going on. Um, Some other examples are things like COVID. I mean, COVID is a really good example in terms of some of the biosecurity laws and other things where the Commonwealth shut down the country and looked to different sectors, but by the time they looked to the Aboriginal community, we'd already locked ourselves down. It was a really excellent example of self-determination, but it's a really good example of, you know, what it looks like to have Aboriginal people at the table. Other legislation, such as climate change, um, anything passed on the race power. The thing that Australians grapple with, which... I think is a better demonstration of why it's important, is that so few Aboriginal people are actually involved in any of this decision-making. There actually aren't, as of two years ago, there were no Aboriginal people at the table. Um, And so we ask ourselves why the laws and policies are misguided or don't quite hit the target. And there's a kind of... With the voice polling so well among Australians, there's this intuitive, I think, that Australians understand that if you had... Communities, local grassroots communities at the table on some of these key things, then, then you would have better outcomes. They, they would be better quality laws, and you're, you're more likely to do things like close the gap. I think with the intervention, we've spoken to a lot of people involved in that, and they say, in hindsight, if they had been at the table, because remember, there was not a single Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person consulted on those Northern Territory laws... A couple of people were rung, but they weren't consulted on the actual suite of legislation that's known as the Northern Territory Emergency Response. They say they could have um, given input that would have made the resources and the scrutiny of that emergency response less punitive, but more useful to communities in those regions. Um, for example, Aboriginal doctors would have been able to say, you, know, you can't inspect an Aboriginal child's ear without the parent being you know, present. So a lot of the laws in that suite of legislation were actually unlawful. You you can't do those things. Um, But also local knowledge would be able to tell you more nuanced and granular information about how different laws worked in communities like, you know, access to Aboriginal lands, um, permits, um, all the, and, and, of course, the, the wholesale um, prohibition of Aboriginal... ..practice of Aboriginal customary law that happened in those laws. I think um, there's many examples where Australia would be a very different country today if they had have actually gone and spoken to a single Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. Yeah, and
1: I'm not sure if people are aware of that, that in those, that process of the intervention, there were no Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people involved in those decisions that were made in regards to that. So and it was moved through at, like, 2 o'clock in the morning, wasn't it, or something, yeah. in, the, in the house. So. The
2: National Indigenous... Uh, what is it called? The National Indigenous Australians Agency. As of about two years ago, they didn't even have a single Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander bureaucrat working in the peak agency. I mean, this is how absolutely nonsensical the whole system is. And so, I, and, and I think that really fed into this the process at Uluru around or in the dialogues about... How do you compel the government to listen to you? Because we know that government doesn't listen to us out of the kindness of their heart, right? And so you've you've got to compel them and you compel them by using their law. And um, it's important for people to keep in mind that we're in the actual text of the Constitution. You're just setting up the power for the Commonwealth to set up the model, right? It's an enabling provision. So you're not putting the bricks and mortar of the voice in the Constitution. You know, you're putting in a whole... Um, some backbenchers say you, you want to put all the legislation in the context. This is not what we're trying to do. Um, we're trying to set up this provision that does preserve parliamentary sovereignty and allows Parliament to, to, to do um, that work. And we remember the ATSIC right. legislation that took... I think it's the longest or second-longest... In Australian history, as someone was someone's like yes, to um, to pass the federal parliament. So we know whatever legislation comes through the house on the voice, it's going to be scrutinised more than anything that's ever gone through the parliament.
1: So I think I think for me, just even hearing from Megan this evening is thinking, and and you hearing that for many of these things, there has not been Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander people involved in decision making at the table. Um, involved in, in in the execution of those decisions and what she's proposed is essentially that we are at the table, just to even have a voice at the table to be involved in the decision making and to help direct some of the policies and the programs that comes down into communities um, at the national level but then th- flow through. So
2: frustration. Sorry. That's the, that
1: is the frustration, because I have to sometimes also myself think, what are people so frightened of when Aboriginal, traditional people aren't even at the table? Is there a fear there about having us even at the table that people are unwilling to even entertain the idea?
2: And it is. It's at the table, right? And then people said to us after Uluru, well, do we have to listen? Is it binding? And we're like... Well, no, parliamentary sovereignty means the parliament still does what it wants, and that obviously has a kind of um, has has it has, has received a fair bit of criticism from our mob, who would like it to be justiciable. And look, we don't actually know, we don't actually know at this point whether it will or won't, um, because we're not down that road. But 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 this um, is it going to be binding? Well, no. But there will be a lot of political traction and political attention. It's upfront political empowerment. Oh, so it's not binding? Yeah, no, we won't do it anyway. And it's, it's just frustrating that um, one of the things about Uluru is it's a compromise. It's a compromise on the expert panel that recommended what Tony Abbott called a one-clause Bill of Rights, right, a non-discrimination clause. So we went back to the drawing board and thought, well, how can we come up with something that is not um, a non discrimination, like, not a one-clause Bill of Rights, but something that will empower our people? We come up with the voice, and, and still they say no.
1: So, do you think this would be like the voice would be the First Nations voice would be a collective of people you said drawn from um, you know across the nation, um, and would that have a fixed term and how would that operate?
2: So that's kind of being discussed by this process that's going on now. I mean, it's the the process going on now is a bit different to what the dialogues wanted. The dialogues wanted a First Nations-based membership, yeah, and that ultimately you would have all First Nations represented in this structure. This committee seems to be reverting to a kind of Western Liberal ballot box model, like ATSIC. Um, But the ATSIC ballot box model, as we know, didn't necessarily work for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander but they're just kind of sticking to what I suppose they know as opposed to innovating. And that's our frustration as kind of young lawyers and other people coming through is that there's... You know, Australia used to be a real pioneer in terms of innovating in public policy and and here we're trying to innovate and you just... You know, most of the committee are um, 70, and they are the people that have been on all of the committees that have designed... um, Well, they are. And and they've been on the committees that have designed most of the mechanisms for the past 30 years. So they're designing the same things again. But whether we're setting up a mechanism that enables um, our, our children... And the Uluru Statement, of course, is very much imbued with a very deep concern about our youth being empowered and about our youth detention and our child removals, we, we need to be setting up a, an innovative, you know... Um,
1: it might be good structure. just to explain that there is a youth dialogue group.
2: Yeah, there's, so there's a group of... A large group of young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people from right across the country who um, work with a lot of the leadership from Uluru on um, just working among, you know, other Australian youth about this reform, because as the polling shows, the, the youth of Australia aren't afraid of this reform. Um, they they, uh, they rate they rate very highly in terms of the polling and support for this for this change. And before we finish up,
1: Megan, um, I just if you could touch on that polling, that there was recently um, the submission process for the Voice and the preliminary sort of breakdown is starting to come through. If you could just share that with the group on on what you know about that.
2: Yeah, so, well, the polling over four years is a very great paper by Francis Markham from CAPER at ANU, who kind of has looked at all of the polling over the past four years, and we've just had a f- couple more polls come out, including the ABC one yesterday. So it is an unusual reform in that it, um, it does... It's always polled, and a majority of Australians would vote yes in a referendum. There's still some people who don't know enough and want to know more before they would exercise that vote... But the submissions process led by this committee, we, my team's read all 3,015, I think. The day it closed on the 30th of May, there was 86% of Australians wanted an, a voted a referendum. They wanted an enshrined voice. And then as of yesterday, it's gone up to 90%. So there's 18 submissions against the voice, but the rest are just mob and Australian organisations and sporting organisations and corporates and my mum, she did one, um, just saying that they um, would support, they want to they vote, they want to have their say at a ballot box. There, there's absolutely that overwhelming support, but, but law reform's a long game, right? Well, hopefully not too long a game, um, but, but law reform doesn't happen overnight and when I had
1: a look at the submissions I was just stunned by the diversity and maybe people in the room had put in 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 this room tonight have put in a submission but we had you know submissions in there from Qantas and all the usual big corporates but through to groups like the Josephite Sisters and you know the Catholic National Catholic Diocese and um, the Anglican Primate, and the very, the, the associate Federation of Australian Women Medical Practitioners, like huge variety of groups and associations. And Australians who
2: live in Berlin. That was my favourite submission.
1: <laughs> so it is worth getting in and having a look, <laughs> because some of those submissions do represent not just one person, or in one. every submission counts in, in any kind of um, inquiry or, or, or big process like that. But... From one individual through to conglomerations of thousands.
2: Yeah, no, it's incredible.
1: Um, Megan, I want to thank you on behalf of everyone here this evening um, for your words tonight and sharing um, not just of the process, but we know that you've shared through this. A great part of your life has been dedicated to doing this. It has, in terms of the lead-up, because you've been an important cog in terms of the process, and it's. Part of your flow through from doing your degree and your law degree at UQ, that has enabled then you to move into the UN and then you to bring that knowledge and that wealth of knowledge and experience to the Uluru Dialogues, right through then to the convention. And now we're seeing that again through the last four years. This week will be four years since the Uluru Statement from the Heart was gifted to the people of Australia. And that journey will keep going for all of us, But it will also, I know, keep going for you after this evening. So, um, if people can give Megan another round of applause.